When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You actually took over for Larry King. And about a month into my tenure, he finally snapped and he said, he gave an interview and he said, you know, watching Piers' show is like watching my mother-in-law drive my favorite Bentley over a cliff. <laughs> How did that gel with people who thought, nah, he's a jerk? I take people as I find them. I heard you were a horror story. And yet to my pleasant surprise, you turned out to be just mildly disagreeable. <laughs> Can you turn his mic off? <laughs> Somebody pull the plug on this guy. Well, that was me talking to Piers Morgan. And if you don't know Piers Morgan, you should. If you don't listen to Piers Morgan, you should. If you don't read his columns, you should. Even if you're a hater. If you're a hater, you ought to read them because it'll make you think. If you love his point of view, then you already read them because you like the way he comes at things. He is smart, he is provocative, and he intends to be. He is a fun guy. He is very passionate about what he does, and he's honest. And For example, he says he is very skilled at self-publicity. He said he spent a good part of his time going around and standing next to famous people just so everybody would think he was friends. He's a total self-promoter. But I have to say, he's got guts. He will talk about topics that are dangerous to talk about. He's been around for a long time. He started out with the South London News, is the Sun over in London, News of the World, the Daily Mirror, Mail Online, where he is currently. And in full disclosure, he does some work on one of my TV shows, Daily Mail TV. So I do have a connection to him. Doesn't mean I didn't ask him hard questions. This really is a thought-provoking and interesting guy. Whether you love him or you hate him, you have to respect the fact that he is intellectually active, he drills down on things, and he speaks his mind. We're going to have some of these controversial, most provocative columns on drfillintheblanks.com. So let's listen to what he has to say. We're going to do that in less than one minute. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So thanks for doing this, by the way. My pleasure. When Dr. Phil calls, I mean, how can the answer be no? Yeah, right.
I really appreciate when I first came in, you reminded me of knocking over red <laughs> wine. I think it was on white carpet. David Foster, who I know you've done for this series, had invited me to his house for this dinner party to meet Barbara Streisand, who I'd never met and was desperate to meet. And I remember standing there and everyone was there, about 16 people. Donna Summer was there a right. few months before she died, Regis Philbin. Uh, it was a real stellar crowd of people. And I just remember you arriving and you were slightly flustered. You are a bit late, I think. And you came careering Me? in. Like? I thought, Dr. Phil, this is, he's here. And with that, everything in that house, it turned out, was white. I only realized this when you came in and accidentally tipped a bottle of red wine all over the gleaming white foster carpet. Oh, I do remember that now. It wasn't a glass of red wine. It was a bottle was of a red bottle. wine over at the counter. Yes. And it fell off, hit the floor, splattered all over yeah. the wall, all over yeah. everything. And I thought, wow, this guy knows how to make an entry. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was actually you that knocked that over. <laughs> That's fake news. That's fake news. Yes. It was definitely you. I introduced myself shortly afterwards. You were slightly mortified, but I, of course, found it hugely entertaining. I wasn't slightly mortified. I was, A, spotted with red wine <laughs> and totally goddamn mortified. Robin turns around and says, I can't take you anywhere. Good God. Well, if you remember, I did you a, a solid, actually, because I was trying to think, how can I do something even more embarrassing, which will take all the heat off Phil? And I ended up, if you remember, having one too many glasses of wine and deciding for reasons that remain baffling to me to go on bended knee and hold Barbara Streisand's hand as I sang to her the theme tune from The Way We Were with David Foster on the piano. And all I remember is the room went completely silent. And it wasn't a good <clears throat> silence. It was more of an uncomfortable silence. And at the end of my wailing, Barbara smiled at me and said, Piers, that's one of the sweetest things anyone's ever done for me. But please don't ever do it again. <laughs> yeah. As I recall, what was the song you were singing? Because you were singing the wrong song. I think I was. Yeah. It wasn't the song from that movie. It, was. it wasn't the song that she sang. I think I ended up singing Memories, the Lloyd Webber one. Right. It wasn't the way we were theme shit. Exactly. Not only was it tuneless and appalling, it was actually the completely wrong song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you on every level it failed. <laughs> you remembered the wine, but you left out that you sang the wrong song to Barbara Streisand. The narrative from that <clears throat> dinner party, to my dismay, was not Dr. Phil and the horrific bottle of red wine incident. Yeah. It was me massacring a song to Barbara yeah. Streisand. Because while you're singing that, she's looking at me going, <laughs> what? 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 What is he doing? Do you know the extraordinary thing, actually, about Barbara Streisand? A, she was fantastic company. But what I remember was, at the end, everyone had a little sing-song, and David Foster got around his piano, and then he had right. a, one of his little boy band groups came in and sang very beautifully. Donna Summer uh, very tragically died within a year of this dinner party, right. actually, and didn't know she was ill. She sang beautifully. Uh, Regis Philbin sang with his wife, and everyone was singing. Except I don't me think you and me and got, Barbara. You and me didn't get the nod. But then all eyes, of course, turned to Barbara, and she declined. And when I said to her, why wouldn't you sing in a tiny environment like this? And she said, I can never sing when I can see people's faces up close. Yeah. And she said, I got so freaked out performing live. I didn't perform for 25 years after, I think it was Central Park in New York, she sang in front of 100,000 people. And she so close to the crowd, she could see their faces. Yeah. And she was so sick from nerves, she didn't perform again for a quarter of a century. She won't sing Happy Birthday. No. You know, kind of like... Amazing. Just in the group, she won't sing Happy Birthday. And there's a great clip on my show where she talks about 
having so much anxiety about that. And I say, would you like to deal with that? And she swings her feet up on the couch and says, yeah, would you fix that for me? <laughs> she has a great sense of humor. Fantastic and, person. And uh, she really is a class act. Yeah, absolutely. But, but extraordinary that someone <clears throat> like that, so talented, yeah. the greatest singer perhaps of them all, yeah. couldn't sing for a private group. Yeah. But she's funny. She's witty. She's fun to be oh. around. I mean, she's been to our home and we've had fun. I mean, it's just been one of my favorite dinner great. parties ever that night. Yeah. Even without the wine, it was fun, right? <laughs> so what did your mate say after you sang the song? Um, I told you what mine said Celia, after I spilled Celia, the wine. Celia, my wife, just, she just had that face that she puts on, unfortunately, rather too regularly, where it's like, at what point can I leave here with any modicum of my dignity intact? Yeah, you were trying to get her on your show. I was, and I got her on the show. Yeah. She came on. We did a one-hour special, one of the best interviews that I think she's done. He says immodestly, but she was great. Yeah. And I loved it. To this day, she remains one of my favorite interviewees ever. As you say, funny, sharp, brilliantly talented, a pleasure to meet. You actually took over for Larry King, mm. and you had that show from 2011 to 2014. Yeah. When Larry was on, I probably did his show 50 times. Yeah. I guest hosted for him probably 25 times. I hosted his 70th birthday surprise where it started out, the first 10 minutes of the show went normal, and then I stood up and said, okay, stop, you come over here, I'm coming over there, I'm the host tonight, this is your 70th surprise birthday party, and we had like 48 guests. Side story, about 10 minutes in, the prompter eats itself. <laughs> so I've got 48 guests all over the world by satellite and in studio, including Mike Wallace, no prompter. So I'm thinking all I got to do is get to the end of the hour and I'm finally done. <laughs> I get to the end of the hour and they say in my ear, network is called, this is going so well, they want to extend 30 minutes. <laughs> going, oh shit, are you kidding me? I can't believe it. I do that show like 50 times, guest hosted all of these times. You take over the show for four years. I never got invited onto the show. <laughs> you did get invited. No, I did not. Really? I did not get invited onto that show. Are you serious? I got invited one time to come talk about some topic for yeah. a segment. And I said, tell them to kiss my ass. If, I'm, <laughs> if, I am not, if I'm not worthy of being the topic, if I'm not worthy of being the guest on the show... Tell him to kiss my this, ass. This, I is, this is revenge today, isn't it? Yeah, this is, <laughs> this so, is takedown. You've waited you, a long time for this. I'm just telling you what's happening from this point <laughs> forward. Well, I can only apologize. It certainly wouldn't have been anything personal. I love you. Never was I invited to be on the show in four years after being probably the most frequent, prolific guest ever on Larry King. I was never invited to be on your show. I was show. just playing hard to get. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> You're still eating away. No, it doesn't bother me at all, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that you was know, so my, odd, because I am such a big fan of yours. Well, the only person that took it worse, my show, than you, was Larry himself, who about a month after I started, I, I was trying to you know, say all the right things. I said, look, this is like following Frank Sinatra at the Sands mm -hmm. in Vegas and all that kind of thing. And Larry was having none of it. And about a month into my tenure, he finally snapped and he said, uh, he gave an interview and he said, you know, watching Piers' show is like watching my mother-in-law drive my favorite Bentley over a cliff. 
<laughs> and so C and M were like, don't respond, all right? Just please do not, don't get into a war with Larry King. You're not going to win. I went, okay. But of course, I'm, I'm British. And the Brits, you know, if, if someone punches us in the face, we're always going to whack back. So <clears throat> about a week later, I was doing some red carpet thing. And they said, so what do you make of Larry King? Saying, you know, your show reminds me of his mother-in-law driving your favorite Bentley over a cliff. I went, well, to be fair to Larry, he is an expert in mother-in-laws. He's had eight of them. <laughs> Larry grudgingly admired the gag, actually. Yeah, he had to, because I know him. He would like that. <laughs> but no, this isn't revenge. But I was surprised because I've been a huge fan of yours. I love your columns. I love your wit. Is it your objective to be provocative? Yes. Define provocative the way you use it. What's your objective when you write these columns? Well, one thing I would say is <clears throat> with the columns, as with everything I do on television, the opinions I espouse are sincerely held. It's what I genuinely oh, feel. that's clear. I don't think you can be an authentic columnist. No, no, you or, don't make stuff up. That's clear. No. So these are things that I've thought about, and I take a position on stories of the day, you know, whatever it may be. And there's a sort of rhythm and art to a column where you have to set up the column, you have to explore the debate, and then you must come down, in my opinion, with an opinion. You know, I think we live in an era now where everyone's on social media, everyone's got opinions. They want to be told what to think about stuff. And I think that if I provide any public service now, it's to stimulate proper debate in an era when I'm really concerned that the old-fashioned style of democratic debate is getting crushed, that universities in America, in Britain, and all the places once revered free speech now delight in no-platforming people and shutting down any opposing views. I want to try and constantly challenge that slightly snowflakey way that we're all going and say, look, there's nothing wrong with opinion. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with people's opinions. And you must be prepared to have a democratic debate about stuff. Otherwise, no one gets anywhere. What I like about the columns is they get huge responses, good, bad, and ugly, but they stimulate and encourage free and open debate. I don't agree with every position you take in every column, but I have to say, in the main, we think a lot alike. Right. Which is really frightening to me. Quite disturbing for me, actually. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? yeah. You say, I think, what a lot of people are afraid to say. You give a voice to what is not necessarily politically correct, because there's not much that is politically correct anymore. Right. You know, I do a show that deals with a lot of very touchy topics, and it's really hard to do it without offending somebody some way. I mean, even in mental health, because there are different positions on mental health. Right. Some people think it's this way, some people think it's that way. It's hard to not offend somebody all the time, but you tend to offend a lot of people a lot of the time. Well, I'd rather say, look, if you're gonna be offended by an opinion, a forthright opinion, then just don't read my columns, because I will offend you. You know, there's going to be somebody somewhere who finds everything I ever write offensive. But they are honestly held opinions. And I do think we're living in an era, as I say, where there's a sort of mob mentality to opinion these days, driven, I think, by social media. Twitter will take a position about something. And, you know, woe betide anybody who dares to say, well, I don't agree. And often I find myself, I don't agree, actually, with the Twitter mob opinion. And the reason for that is Twitter only represents you know, a small fraction of the wider public, I'm sure you know this, is that actually things like President Trump and Brexit in Britain, for example, they happen, and Twitter can't believe it. Twitter's like, how did this happen? Everyone <clears throat> in my Twitter feed told me that they agreed with me. They operate in this weird echo chamber, which often bears no relation 
to how the wider public are feeling about things. I don't think my positions on stuff are particularly controversial or indeed unpopular. I actually think it's the opposite. I think the Twitter mob is more unpopular than it thinks it is. It's the silent majority. Right. Which is big. It is. It's the silent majority. And my attitude about it, and I'm in my 17th season on Dr. Phil right now. That's after five years on Oprah. So I've been doing this 22 years. And I made this decision a long time ago. You're going to make somebody mad, whatever you do. Right. So you might as well do what you want to do, because somebody's going to be upset. So I might as well make myself happy. And don't you think the key is to be true to yourself, right? That's what I mean. You I know, might pe- as well make people, myself happy. People may hate me for my opinions. They may disagree with the column I write, something I say on television. But what they can't hate me for is not being authentic or true to myself, because I believe what I write and say. I can have my opinion changed. People mm-hmm. can persuade me that I'm wrong, perhaps, or events may happen which change my perspective on something. But when I write these things or say them on television in real time, I mean them. And I will always defend anybody's right to have an honestly held opinion. And that's gone away in America right now. Right. There was a story yesterday on the Daily Mail website that 25% of millennials believe they have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, because of the Trump victory in the 2016 election. Now, my brother is a British Army colonel, currently serving in Afghanistan. I have met some of his men and women who suffer from PTSD, from serious injuries they're sustained in battle. The idea that there is any equivalence at all on this planet between what they have been through and what some of these millennials claim they are suffering from, because an election result went the wrong way, It's so mind-boggling to me, and I'm afraid it plays right into this sense that we're getting that the snowflake generation is really getting a grip on America, and indeed on my own country, Britain, that universities are clamping down free speech completely, and that it's becoming offensive to have an opinion that the millennial view has decided is wrong. You know what I worry about? I think language is a very powerful thing, and so I always tell people, when they use catastrophic language. I have people come on and they've been through a divorce or maybe they found their spouse was cheating on them or whatever. They come in and they say, it was just horrible. I mean, it was the most horrible thing I've ever heard. I think, you know what? I spent time on the children's burn unit at Parkland in Dallas. That's horrible. When you walk in and see a child with full death burns over 70% of their body and they're having to be scrubbed and they don't understand why we're inflicting this pain on them, that's horrible. Finding out somebody you met on some dating website slept with somebody else last night, that's annoying. I think, I think this generation... That's not horrible. Th- they've lost perspective is yeah. really what I think we're getting at. And I think we're agreed on this, is that they've lost all perspective. You know, I remember talking to my grandmother a lot, who was in her late <clears> teens <throat> in World War II, about what life was like for a, a, someone who was 17, 18 in World War II in, in Britain when the, the bombs were dropping down on your heads. You know? yeah. And there's no doubt that they had a resilience to them, um, which I think stood them in great stead for the rest of their lives, which allowed them to deal with what I call the normal rough and tumble of life. You know, life's not easy. Life can be quite tough. It can be glorious, but it can also be difficult. What I think is happening with young people in particular now is we're cosseting them so much, wrapping them in so much cotton wool. You know, at school, they can't ever lose anymore. They all have to win a participation prize for competing at sport. 
Well, why? Why can't they lose? Everybody gets why a trophy. They, right. This whole culture seems to me designed specifically to leave them ill-prepared for real life. You know, there's actually a precedent for this because back in the 60s and early 70s, they did something called a teaching machine. And they went through a procedure where they taught students in such small steps that they never missed anything. So they would say, the capital of Kansas is, and then they would give them the word Topeka. Then they would say, Topeka is the capital of Kansas. And then they would say, Kansas has a capital. It is, I mean, with such small steps that they would go through all of this and they would go through it. They would make a hundred and they actually did learn the material. They mastered the material. No doubt. They actually knew what they needed to know. But then they put them back out into the general school population and they took a test that wasn't fed to them in that way. And they made an 84 they were wailing in the halls. They thought their self-image was ruined. They thought it was a success-only journey. And when they found out, no, it's not a success-only journey, there were bumps along the way. You get dinged up along the way. They had no coping skills whatsoever. I feel like we're headed that way again. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got four kids. You know, my boys are 25, 21, uh, 18. My little girl's <clears throat> nearly, nearly seven. And I've said the same to all of them. Is that there's nothing wrong with losing, but it's better to win. Better to win in life. It's better to be mentally strong and to be resilient, to come through tough stuff stronger than you went into it. I said, life will deal you curveballs. It will. And you've got to be strong enough to deal with it because outside of death, you're going to still be around to have to pick up the pieces. So you may as well learn how to do it in a way that doesn't suck you down. Yeah. You haven't been that way. And you've done a lot of things that people probably don't know about. In 1994, you became the youngest editor of a British national newspaper in 50 years when you were appointed editor of News of the World by Rupert Murdoch, and you were 28. Mm. Editor. Mm. That's unheard of. It was a very strange thing. And to, you know, I remember Rupert Murdoch flying me to Miami, walking me along Miami Beach in, with our shoes and socks off for three hours talking about life and the universe, never once mentioning what I was doing there. I was the editor of the show business column in the Sun newspaper. And these were his two big tabloids in Britain, two of the biggest selling papers in the world at the time. And the News of the World was number one. It was the most read newspaper in the world. And he introduced me to somebody at a party that night. And I'd been with him for about 10 hours by now. And he, he said the words, this is uh, my friend Piers Morgan from London. He's the new editor of the News of the World. That's how I found out. That's how you found out you had the job? <laughs> That's how I found out. You didn't even know you were there to talk about the job. I had no idea what I was doing there at all. Really? Yep, really. And then he flew me to New York in his private plane, and we talked newspapers for the whole time. It was like a masterclass from somebody who understands the business of newspapers, how they're produced, how they're marketed, how they're sold, how they're edited, better than anyone I've ever worked with in my life. And at the end of it, I took my bag off his plane, he said, okay, Piers, good luck. You're going to be a great success. Don't worry about it. Off you go. And I flew back to London that night. I was thinking, what the hell just happened? And uh, I stayed good friends with Rupert over the years. And I was at a dinner party recently where I finally got to really thank him. You know, at about midnight, we had a couple of glasses of wine. I said, I just want to thank you, Rupert, because actually without you making that huge leap of faith on a rookie, that's all I was. I was a rookie. He just had an instinct. And I said, if you hadn't done that, then the rest of my career could have been very, very different. I think at some stage in all our lives, you need somebody somewhere to go, 
I'm going to take a punt on this guy. Were you overwhelmed? Were you scared? Were you excited? I mean, come I think on, 28 the, years old. I was apprehensive. I was certainly very excited. I certainly think that what I would say from memory was there's a fearlessness of youth, which is very useful in that situation. And I think I walked into the newsroom and I could see a staff that was 98% younger than me. And I was the boss, which was a very weird dynamic. But I also felt, well, look, I've got this opportunity. Expectation levels are very, very low. There's only one way to go here if I get it right, which is up. And we began to break some big stories. And the more stories we broke, the more we got talked about, the more the sales figures increased, the more I could feel the room beginning to move with me. And it would be like running a sports franchise or whatever it, it may be. It's really about leadership and about making things work. If it works, then you tend to take people with you. If it doesn't work, you don't. How long were you in that job? I was in that job for just under two years, and then I got poached by the rivals, the Daily Mirror. And to be honest with you, I was getting quite bored with the pace of a once-a-week newspaper. Mm -hmm. I was still under 30. I was very full of energy. We'd had a brilliant couple of years. And the Daily Mirror came mm -hmm. along, and they offered to double my money and give me a daily paper. But of course, it would mean going up against Rupert Murdoch now. And that in itself actually was an extraordinary challenge and one that I thoroughly enjoyed, even though I have to say he, he normally won. You were at the Daily Mirror when the phone hacking scandal mm -hmm. took place. What was your position in and on all of that? I was aware of this thing called phone hacking. I was never involved in phone hacking, despite a lot of my opponents' attempts to try and drag me into it. I was investigated pretty thoroughly. I employed probably a thousand journalists over the 10 years I was at the Daily Mirror. Not one of those journalists has ever been arrested or charged or convicted of any offense in connection with phone hacking. So, you know, I'm very comfortable about my position about it. Having said that, I think it was something that clearly for the industry was a very bad thing. I think that ultimately you had a bunch of lazy journalists who were trying to cut corners by hacking into people's phones and getting stories. And I think that they paid, in some cases, a very heavy price for that. And rightly so. I think the industry woke up, realized it was wrong. And thankfully, that won't be happening again. But to those, you know, who to this day on Twitter, I get people saying, you did this, you did this, you did that. I did not hack a phone in my life nor did I ever tell anybody to. There was a Levinson inquiry, and this Brian Levinson, talking about your testimony, said that it was utterly unpersuasive and clearly proves, and I'm taking some parts out and shortening it, he says it clearly proves that he was aware that it was taking place in the press as a whole and that he was sufficiently unembarrassed by what was criminal behavior that he was prepared to joke about it. True. I mean, that's completely true. And he wasn't talking about all my testimonies being unpersuaded. It was a very particular right. uh, part of the testimony. And the reality is, as I said to him, uh, is, yeah, I was aware of it. And well, I he didn't... says you were aware of it in the press as a whole. Yeah, He's not... not saying you were aware that no. it was happening under your watch. Exactly. And I, I want to be clear about that. Yeah, exactly. And I was aware of it as an industry thing. I'd actually warned people, famous public figures, to be careful about their phones and told them if they hadn't changed their password, they should do it because of this thing called <laughs> phone hacking. But, you know, I found the Levison inquiry was, it was very slanted against tabloids. A lot of the, the more serious papers were up to their necks in pretty dodgy stuff too. Uh, and it was a very kind of them and us mentality to that thing. I, I think the truth about it was that if you're a paper like The Guardian, for example, they had a journalist who admitted phone hacking and their editor was never even asked about it. And I thought, well, come on, <laughs> you've got to be fair about this. 
you know, I'm content that as I sit here with you today, years after this scandal erupted, I think 2011 it blew up, not a single journalist ever worked for me at the Daily Mirror was ever even arrested in connection with this. So people can believe what they like. I prefer to deal with facts. Let me read you a quote and let you respond to this quote. I became a friend of the stars, a rampant egomaniac, pictured all the time with famous people, Madonna, Stallone, McCartney, hundreds of them. It was shameless, as they didn't know me from Adam. Correct. You said that. Yes. What are you talking about? What are you well, doing? when I worked at The Sun, I was doing the show business column, and The Sun had had a few run-ins with big stars, Elton John and a few others. And Medicine said to me, I, I don't care how you do this, you've got to get us back on track with the world of celebrities, right? I don't know how you're going to do it, because it's very tough, because they all hate us right now, but I'll leave it to you. So I decided that the way to do it was to basically continue to put my arm around them at parties and pretend I was their best friend. And it became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, where eventually it happened so often that celebrities would come up to me at parties and ask to be pictured with me because they knew the only way they would get their picture in my column, which was the best read column of its type in Fleet Street, was if my arm was attached to them. So it became a completely beautifully self-fulfilling thing where I ended up officially friend of the stars. And of course, the editor was delighted because they're all back on track doing interviews. But I said to them, you can only be in my column if you pretend to be my best friend. <laughs> So they would all see you with this person, so mm. they think it must be the thing to do. Yes, they think, well, they, they were more cynical than that, Phil. They were like, I'm only going to get the space in this column to promote my album or my film or my TV show if I put my arm around this guy. So I looked like I was the most popular person in the entire world when it came to celebrities. In fact, it was, I think, a mutually self-interested and fairly distasteful exercise. Yeah, but you were good at it. I was the best at that in the world. I yeah. was the best at convincing people I was a friend of the stars. Yeah, because I've seen you on your knees singing to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> My biggest hit, actually, the first time I came to L.A., I'll never forget this, because I now have a house very near here, the Beverly Hilton. You've never put your arm around me for a picture. <laughs> I, of course, you know, I was never on your show either, a, so I guess that says a lot about There is that, a theme right? developing here. There's a pattern here. You are a neglected man when it comes to me. I can only apologize. Obviously doesn't bother me. <laughs> so Frank Sinatra's 75th birthday party at the Beverly Hilton and I'd flown in from LA that morning my first time ever in LA and I remember I'm friend of the stars I didn't even know this party was happening it's happening in my hotel and someone says it's Sinatra's 75th they're all coming everybody right so I go and hire a tux and I stand outside and for the next hour the biggest stars in the world come in to Frank's party only while they're all milling around the foyer I'm bouncing around getting pictures with them. So the Sun on Monday just had about 30 pictures of me with everyone from Sinatra to Burt Reynolds to Eddie Murphy to Stallone to Schwarzenegger, everyone at this party. And there's my gurning head next to them as if I'm the most popular guy in the room. I was more popular than Sinatra at his own party. Did you go to the party? No, I wasn't invited. <laughs> you never got in the door? No, I just, once they all went in, I took my tox off and went home. <laughs> went upstairs to my room. I was Billy No Mates after that, but of course my editor didn't know that, nor did the readers of the paper. All they came away was, Frank Sinatra loves this guy. Oh Frank Sinatra goodness. had no idea who I was. Least of all what I was doing at his party. Oh my God. Who took the pictures? Just the wire services? No, all? the photographer had flown with me. He's a good friend of mine. Oh, I see. And uh, he just said to me, look, you just do your thing. I'll take all the pictures. And You just stand by people. I'll get the pictures. Happy days. Happy yeah. days. I'd cracked Hollywood just by basically hiring a tux. Yeah. Well, yeah we, we should write that down. 
you got that down. I'll do that enough. I may actually get in this column or something. <laughs> tell you what, we're taking a picture at the end of this, and I will put it on my Twitter feed to six and a half million people to make you feel special. I don't know if I want a picture now. <laughs> it's like my wife says, if I have to ask you for a compliment, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything if you have to ask. All right. Look, you do have a connection with a lot of celebrities. In fact, you said there's a transaction. I wrote it down. You said that regarding celebrities' privacy, that they could not manipulate the media to further their own needs without accepting the consequences of a two-way deal. Yeah. And you said that in reference to you talking about what's going on in their lives and it being if they're going to use the media to promote their projects, then the media is going to use them to entertain their readers about their lives. Right. So do you pry? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Well, I'm not really in a position to pry anymore because I don't run a newspaper. But certainly when I ran a big newspaper, we would cover the lives of celebrities. And my yardstick was always, in terms of what is this fable phrase, the public interest. If you said as a celebrity, I'm going to sell my wedding to People magazine for a million dollars, right? I don't think you can then claim privacy over the same marriage. You have sold your wedding day, one of the most private days of your life. I was offered a massive six-figure sum for the rights to my wedding, for example. And I said, no. And the figures got more and more. I was doing America's Got Talent. Britain's Got Talent at the time. They all wanted the rights to the pictures. I said, no, 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 no. And on the day, on the, I'll never forget this. On the day, there was a helicopter, I think, from TMZ. It was in little Oxfordshire countryside in England. Mm -hmm. uh, there were paparazzi in all the bushes. They all got their pictures anyway. So I could have taken my money. But I actually, I felt, no, because if you do that, if you sell your wedding, if you actively commercially benefit from your wedding day, you don't have any rights actually to privacy on your life going forward. How can you? It'd be ultimate hypocrisy. I didn't come to Hollywood till I was 50. Something I don't understand is people that work so hard to get fame and then run from their fans. Mm. I don't understand it. And I can honestly say, unless I was actually getting in a car that was pulling away where I literally couldn't control it. I have never in 25 years 
had a fan come up and ask me for a picture or an autograph or to shake hands that I've said no. I'm the same. We both know many people in this business who regularly say no, Yes. who regularly use their bodyguards or their management team to distance themselves from the very people that they owe their entire careers to. And I find that a reprehensible failure of your duty as yeah. somebody in this game, this industry, it is defined by relationship with fans. If they don't go and pay good money to see your TV shows, your movies, your concerts, whatever it may be, then there is no business. There is no career. I'd always rather be a pleasant surprise to people right. than a reaffirming their bitter disappointment. And I think that I see so many people that just are rude to waiters, rude to chauffeurs, all the so-called little people. Actually, they're just as big, important people as you. And I find that kind of behavior horrible. I wonder what people thought that decided that you were a cold-hearted asshole, <laughs> that when you were on the talent shows, you gave yourself away mm. because you were very soft-hearted. And you told the truth, mm. but you were very soft-hearted and very protective of people getting bullied. Yeah. And... How did that gel, I wonder, with people who thought, nah, he's a jerk? I think that... Because you didn't let anybody get bullied ever one time. I, I watched all the time. You right. never let anybody get bullied. No, and I, I didn't like that. And I think that that's when those shows take a bit of a dark turn. And it's not about that. It's about finding and unearthing gems, you know, really extraordinary, yeah. talented people. Um, I see a lot of famous people that I have personal knowledge of who have angelic reputations that they play up to all the time. They're always doing stuff for charities and this, and they're the holiest of thou, and they're so self-righteous, and they're always virtue signaling on social media about every cause. And I, I know them to be complete douchebags in real right. life, right? And conversely, I know people that I'm not supposed to like, who are supposed to be like, Simon Cowell right, has a very divisive reputation as somebody supposed to be Mr. Mean. I've known Simon 25 years. One of the nicest guys you'll meet, one of the most polite people, you'll meet, actually, when you're out and about with him in restaurants and so on. Incredibly polite and generous to all the staff. Uh, a nice guy. Nothing like his reputation. So I've always taken a view. I take people as I find them. I heard you were a horror story. And yet, to my pleasant surprise, you turned out to be just mildly disagreeable. <laughs> Can you turn his mic off? <laughs> Somebody pull the plug on this guy. No, I think it's... Uh, I have no desire to try and propagate a false image of myself at all. I would rather people just, I, when I'm on Twitter, that's who I am. I'm confrontational, argumentative, passionate, emotional. If you see me tweeting about my football team, Arsenal, I can sound like an un, unhinged lunatic sometimes, but that is exactly how I'm feeling in the moment. And I think that if you try and sugarcoat yourself and try and pretend to be something you're not, this business will find you out. Yeah. People will find you out. And when you step in it, you own it. I have a quote here I really like. You were talking about a segue, and you were talking about George W. Bush, <laughs> who fell off of a segue and hurt himself. And you said, the way Brits do, they put everything as a question. You would have to be an idiot to fall <laughs> off, wouldn't you, Mr. President? <laughs> this was right before you fell off <laughs> of a segue, breaking three ribs. Would that be accurate? Five ribs, it turned five out. Five ribs? We thought it was three. It turned out to be five ribs and collapsed a lung. Four days before the America's Got Talent finale, I think in 2007, so series two or three, 
And uh, it was excruciatingly painful, but even more embarrassing. Because as an editor, in fact, that appeared as a headline in the Daily Mirror, which was pictures of W falling over with this headline. So you'd have to be a complete idiot to fall off one of these, wouldn't you, Mr. President? In other words, like you. And then, yeah, I mean, what goes around comes around, Dr. Yeah. Phil. I think that would be my overriding view of that story. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> what were you doing on a segue? I have a mad friend called Ellis Watson, who's a, a sort of unverified lunatic and he came over for 36 hours to LA and said we're going to do some crazy stuff one of which was getting on a Segway which I'd never been on before and for those who've never used them before they're a bit weird to get the hang of because to break you have to sit back and push forward with the handlebar rather than do what you instinctively do which is pull it thing. so I zoomed off at about 12 miles an hour the top speed and clipped the curb on Santa Monica down on the beach oh flipped God. bang into the concrete and as I lay there, I thought, I'm actually dying. I'm going to die killed by a Segway. And here's the ironic thing. The guy who invented Segways, do you know how he died? On a Segway? Fell off a cliff whilst on his own Segway. The guy who invented Segways. So these things are more dangerous than you think. Oh, you wouldn't get me on one. I'll never get near one again. You know, for a reasonable athlete, I have the worst balance of it. I have to concentrate to sit here in this chair. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I could fall out of here any second. <laughs> You know, you've done the talent shows. You've done a lot of stuff, a lot of different things. America's Got Talent. Britain's Got Talent. You even did Celebrity Apprentice. You did a follow-up to Celebrity Apprentice. You won in, uh, was it 2008? Yeah, the first series. Yeah. yeah, you won the United States celebrity version of The Apprentice. Mr. Trump referred to you as ruthless, arrogant, evil, and obnoxious. I think he meant that as a compliment. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> well, I think coming from him, that would probably be a compliment. Well, so I can, I can round that story off for you because th those were the last words he said to me before making me the winner. And when he won the presidency, I sent him a note and it had that quote that he said to me and I replicated it for him. I said, Mr. Trump, you've been ruthless, arrogant, obnoxious. You're possibly brilliant. I don't know but you beat the hell out of everyone and you're the president of the United States. It was the exact same quote, only spun into what he'd achieved, which was, you know, even more extraordinary, obviously. Did he recognize the quote? He laughed, yeah, he laughed. He's got a good, I mean, you know Trump well. I mean, he's, for those who've known Trump a long time, I don't think he's as scary if you've known him a long time as he is to a lot of people, especially in LA and in New York, where they seem to just go nuts at the mention of his name. He is what he is. He's, a, he's what we would call in Britain, a, he's, a, he's a bullshitting trader. You know, he sold real estate for 50 years by piling them high, telling a good story, you know, playing a bit loose with the facts. That's what he is. And to try and pretend he's going to change himself at 70, forget it. Yeah, that's not going to happen. No. Do you think he'll be reelected? Yeah. I do. Yeah. And I predicted he'd win the first time when everybody else kept saying no chance. I remember seeing he had a 2% chance, 538, the, the, the data experts, gave him a 2% chance of winning the Republican nomination. And I said, nonsense. I said, you just don't understand. He is sucking up all the television airtime here, <laughs> right? It's all Trump. And it is today. I, I sat this morning. And where are we? We're nearly two years into the administration. I sat this morning and watched US cable news for three hours. It was 99.999% Trump. It was so exhausting. I had to go back to bed. I just thought, this he's not just the news. He's all the news. Yeah. There is nothing else. Yeah. It's just Trump. And I never talk politics, and I won't now. I don't ever say where I come down, because I don't think it's right, because 
I have people's trust because of expertise in one area to use that influence to push them in one direction or another in another area. I think that's a misuse of influence. So I don't ever weigh in. I don't say if I'm Democrat, Republican, vote this way or that way. Um, but I watch the dynamic between what's going on and it's astounding to me that the enemies of Trump empower him so much by what they do. Well, they're doing it because they're making so much money. And let's be quite clear. You know, cable news audiences are at record highs and making them hundreds of millions of dollars. New York Times subscriptions have, have quadrupled under Trump, making them tens of millions of dollars profit. So there is real money to be made. All the best-selling books in America in the last two years have been anti-Trump books, Trump bashing books. And I'm not questioning the legitimacy of any of that. They may all b entirely believe what they say all the time. But there's money in bashing Trump far more than there is in supporting the guy. And I, I travel a lot in America. I've, I've had homes in New York and L.A. I still have one in L.A. But I've also traveled a lot filming down in Florida and Texas and Alabama and places like that. There's a completely different mentality towards President Trump that you get than you get on the coast. It's like two oh, worlds. Absolutely, two worlds. yeah. No question about that. You interviewed Trump in uh, January of this year, and they did a poll, and 88% of the respondents to a Radio Times Twitter poll viewed you as not being tough enough on him. What do you think of that? Well, I've interviewed Trump probably 40 times um, in my career, and I've always been exactly the same with him. He's one of those guys where if you try and go into in too combative a way, A, the interview doesn't last very long, and B, he tends to be very combative back and shuts everything down. I prefer with Trump to get stuff on the record. He's the president of the United States. I try to cover as much ground as I can in my allotted 20, 25 minutes, whatever you may get with him, yeah. and just get him on the record about stuff because actually that's what's most important. There is a kind of sense amongst those who never get near Trump that if they interviewed him, they would smash him over the head, you know, with a metaphorical hammer for... Well, they get about a minute if they tried that and they'd be removed. Right. So you've got oh, to have yeah, a reality right. check about these kind of interviews. When I see people interview any president of the United States going back 30 years, I don't remember anybody taking a hammer and whacking the president metaphorically for 10, 15, 20 minutes. It doesn't happen. No, it's not going to happen. And you've got to show, I, I believe in showing respect to the offices of presidency. As long as Trump is president, I will respect that office. I'm a visitor to this country. I'm very blessed to have had a great... Uh, long-running career in this country, which I'm very proud of and very grateful for. I have a house here. My daughter was born in America. And I think the least I can do when I sit down with the President of the United States, even if he's not my personal politics, which he's not, is to show respect to the office. And I will continue to do that. Right. What did you think of the Women's March on Washington in January 17? Well, I read a column just saying I, th I didn't see the point of it. Uh, if the point was just to howl abuse about Trump, fine, then say that's what it is. Don't pretend it's really about fighting for women's rights or gender equality. If it had been that, I'd have marched with them. But it turned into this horrible slangy match. Madonna giving some hysterical speech saying that she wanted to firebomb or dreaming of firebombing the White House and so on. It was violent rhetoric. It seemed to me completely hysterical, no purpose. And it didn't really achieve anything. Other than everyone who went on the march felt better for themselves because they were screaming about Trump. But I keep saying to my liberal friends, and I'm broadly liberal myself, and I say to them, listen, at what point will the penny drop that screaming abuse at this guy not only empowers him, 
but it also makes it harder for you to beat him. The Democrats need to find a better, smarter way. Liberal celebrities do not help by just screaming about this guy 24-7. There's got to be a smarter way if you want to be him. And that really was my point about the march, was, look, I get you hate him. I get you find him incredibly distasteful in many ways. But if you want to unseat him, then these kind of hysterical marches with the rhetoric that was being used will actually help empower him. They won't damage him. What was the response to that? Uh, well, I mean, people went nuts, you know, because I was deviating from the Twitter mob view. Ewan McGregor, the actor, was due to come on my show, Good Morning Britain. And when he found out he claims that I was hosting that day, he left the green room, walked out and tweeted, I will not appear with this man because of his views about the Women's March. And I was like, well, A, what's it got to do with you, what I think about the Women's March? B, you were supposed to be talking about your movie, which, by the way, sucks. So I was doing you a favor and see, this was a guy, Ewan McGregor, who had worked with and, and lauded from the rooftops Roman Polanski, who last time I checked is a fugitive child rapist who's never been brought to justice for what he did. And I'm sorry, I don't see how that makes you Mr. Women's Rights. It makes you Mr. Big Hypocrite. So I don't mind being criticized when I, I write controversial columns, supposedly controversial, but I think you need to get your own ducks in order first, Mr. McGregor. And you said that? I read a column. And did he respond? No, he's gone a bit quiet. I just found the whole thing, it was so predictable. It's like I write these columns, everybody goes nuts, and yet I suspect 80% of them probably quietly agree with me. But they'd be whipped into the Twitter frenzy oh, to think yeah. this is the worst thing that's ever been published. You know, and whatever the subject may be, I've done so many different types of issues. I defy people when they read the columns to feel as inflamed as Twitter has ordered them to be. What do you think about the tabloid press? I mean, I think the tabloid press in the UK is more salacious than the tabloid press in the US, which is hard to imagine. And I've been a target of that so much it's ridiculous. But what do you think about the tabloid press that puts these incredibly salacious, suggestive, pictures, outrageous headlines that just simply aren't true. They're like three-headed alien babies and all of this kind of stuff. What do you think about the protection in America that celebrities have to prove actual malice? I and you don't in, have that protection in Britain. No, in Britain, the, the onus is on the publishers to prove what they publish is true. Right. It's far more difficult, actually, the way the law is structured in our country than it is in America. The First Amendment in America basically gives most publishers the right to do what the hell they like, from what I can make out. And Particularly they, if you're a public figure. Right, unless they can prove deliberate malice was behind what the uh, decision was taken. You know, I'd, I actually think that the British tabloid press is very robust and can be very aggressive when they're up against you. But broadly speaking... They're very popular for a reason. They're lively, they're provocative, they stir things up. And when I see some of the supermarket stuff in America, I think it's far, far more loose with the facts, perhaps, than the British counterparts, simply because the laws are very different. The actual malice law here gives them more leeway. Yeah. It's hard to prove, and even a paid source is considered a source. Mm -hmm. So you can pay somebody 25 bucks to tell you something and say, well, I'm okay, so they were wrong, but I had a right to rely. Here's what I think overall, though, about the press, which is, again, I come back to my, my brother, an army colonel, done several tours of Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. My brother-in-law, brother my sister's husband did the same. Uh, my grandfather, my uncle, a lot of military in the family. 
in the end, if the worst thing that happens to you as a famous person, as a celebrity, is that a paper or a magazine writes some crap about you that you don't like, or is untrue, right? Which is to me always unforgivable. If something's untrue, it's unforgivable. It should never be published. If it's true but you don't like it, then I'm sorry, but that's you know that's what happens if you're a famous person in the world. I've had to put up with it myself, good, bad, and ugly. But I always come back to what the Queen Mother said, so the, the, our reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth, her mum, a wonderful woman, lived to 101. And she famously once said, you know, and I, I repeated this to Melania Trump recently on Air Force One. And she said she'd heard the quote and agreed with it, which was, the rule really of public life, never complain, never explain, and very rarely be heard speaking in public. And if you do all those three things, the public will love you. Queen Mother died with a four, five, six million dollar overdraft, right, heavily in debt to her bank. She had long Dubonnet fueled lunches almost every day. She liked gambling on the horses. And yet because she never gave interviews, because she never complained about anything, because she never explained anything, she died one of the most beloved people in the history of Great Britain. And there's a lesson there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. If you say something about yourself and you don't just emote and whine and moan about every tiny thing that happens to you, you're probably in the end gonna be the winner. Mick Jagger never sues, never really complains, just takes it all good, bad and ugly. I kind of admire that. I think you've got to have a thick skin to do it, but I admire that bigger worldview, which is actually half the world is starving right now. Much of the rest of the world is at war in some capacity. And really, if the worst thing that happens is I have to walk past, as I did on one occasion, and see a, front, a headline on the front page of the National Enquirer about me and Jerry Springer being involved in a, uh, a sunbed war at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. <laughs> which was one of the funniest things I've ever read. And I was like, if that's as bad as my life gets, I can probably handle it, you know? In return yeah. for the private planes and the fancy cars and my lovely home in LA, if that's as bad as it gets, really, it's just an annoying headline that was completely fabricated. I just think, try and, if you can, it comes back to what we said earlier, perspective can be yeah. very important. Let me ask you about some of your columns. You write about things that really matter, and then you write about some things that I wonder why you write about. Give an example. Kanye West and the Kardashians. Right. Why do you take time to write about that? A, because there's a huge audience for those kind of columns. They get tremendous traffic. And I'm in the business of wanting to be read as a columnist. And my value to Daily Mail is if people read my columns, not if they don't. So rather like when people said to me when I ran a newspaper, you'll just do Mr. Sell Papers. I went, well, yes. <clears throat> That's my job, is to sell papers, actually. Um, when I'm doing television, my job is to get ratings. That's my job. Um, so partly, I think it's, it's to get traffic and to stir things up. I'll be unashamed about that. But also, I've never been pompous about the popular zeitgeist. You know, I think if you go down the local bar or the local cafe, you'll hear people in one corner talking about Trump and serious stuff like maybe the murder of the Saudi journalist. I've written a column about both of those subjects in the last week. But you'll also get younger people talking about Kanye West and King Kardashian. And if you consume yourself with such self-righteous pomposity that you can't accept that and think that the only things that matter are the serious things, I think you limit yourself as a writer. I, when I ran a major couple of newspapers in Britain, we tried to cater to everybody. We had serious content, we had trivial content. Both were equally well-read and popular. Mm -hmm. um, and I think most people are able to 
to feel emotions about serious and trivial things. But journalists can get very pompous about this and they can say, you're only allowed to write about war and famine. You can't write about popular culture. And I say, why? Everybody else is talking about it. Why shouldn't you? My actual belief about that is it's escapism. One of my favorite movies is My Cousin Vinny. Right. I mean, ridiculous sitcoms and movies. I think they're of great value because sometimes you need to turn your brain off and just laugh and relax. And so I get it. And I guess by way of full disclosure, I probably should say you're involved with Daily Mail and DailyMail.com and Daily Mail TV. Yeah. And I'm in business with DailyMail.com and executive producer of Daily Mail TV. So we're not completely unattached. Right. So in the interest of full disclosure, I probably should say <laughs> that we're sort of in business yeah. together in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's, uh, I hadn't mentioned that, so I probably should mention that. No, and it, you know, the, the Daily Mail is an interesting phenomenon because it's the biggest English-speaking newspaper website in the world. Right. And there's a reason, I think, is that they put up over 1,200 stories a day. Uh, and they will tell you, you know, the publisher, Martin, who a friend of both of ours, he will tell you it's often the more serious stuff that gets the most traffic on any given day. Yeah. But there's also room always on the Daily Mail homepage for the trivia as well. If you want to just find out, literally, if you want to wake up one day, you've had a rough day, rough morning, and you want to have a bit of fun, then just go and read about the celebrities on Daily Mail. You'll be sated. If you want to read about the serious stuff, that's there too. There's room for all of it. Yeah, and I think that's why it works so well, and that's what we try to do on Daily Mail TV is have a mix. Right. I mean, if there's been a terrible tragedy somewhere, someone's been killed, a bus has gone over the ridge, multiple deaths or whatever, we'll talk about that. But then if Kim Kardashian is doing A, B, or C... She we'll breaks wind that. in a public place. It's a major news event. It's major news. Major <laughs> news. Let's talk about some of your columns. I read all of your columns, and I've admitted that. <laughs> you confessed. <laughs> I confessed it. No guilty uh, pleasure. That's right. Here's the title of one that I found particularly interesting. Hypocrite Hillary's monstrously shameless and self-serving defense of Bill's abuse of power with Monica means no feminist can ever support her again. Mm. You called her out on that mm. because here she is beating the drum about all of this with Trump and Stormy Daniels, is it? I mean, I'm so saturated, <laughs> I've forgotten what it is. I just thought it was breathtaking. I mean, the idea that Hillary has positioned herself as a kind of this great Me Too campaigner, uh, somebody who's always been at the vanguard of women's rights and feminism and so on, for her to just boldly say that what happened between Bill Clinton, who was the 49-year-old president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, and a 22-year-old intern called Monica Lewinsky, was not in some way an abuse of power. No imbalance of power there. I mean, even <laughs> Bill would admit it was an abuse of power, right? obviously. And so the idea that she would somehow draw that distinction between simply because it's her husband, what he did, when it was probably the most obvious abuse of power in, in all of these things, because he's the most powerful guy in the world and she was a, a much younger intern. So I just felt there was a real hypocrisy there. And one of the running themes of, of the columns will often be when you get politicians in particular, just being rankly hypocritical. It's like if you're going to be a politician, be consistent. And I think it resonates really powerfully with the public. But if you become a hypocrite, if you start to say one thing and preach another, you will get found out very quickly. Yeah, no joke. This refers to the hearings on Kavanaugh. You said the day D.C. should have died of shame as it watched two broken souls be publicly tortured over their past 
in a viciously partisan bear pit. What did you think about that? Exactly as I wrote, I felt, I watched it and I thought it was one of the most unedifying things I've ever watched. This was like the most gruesome kind of reality television that you could ever imagine. With two people who had by that stage had several weeks of the world's media converging on every tiny part of their lives, turning it over, throwing all sorts of wild speculation and claim and counterclaim into the ether. And I watched these two people, both in tears at various stages of their testimony, both of them clearly almost broken people who had been bear baited by the system, really, for the delectation of the public. There has to be a better way, doesn't there, than this? This is how uh, someone is progressed to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. There has to be a better way than public humiliation in front of tens of millions of television viewers. Because what I watched made me feel sick to my stomach. And I don't think the public interest was remotely served. In the end, I'll be honest with you, I ended up believing both of them. I actually felt they were both convincing. I thought his behavior was a little erratic, perhaps, for somebody who wants to be on the Supreme Court. But I understood why he'd been, he'd been accused three days before of being a gang rape leader. I mean, this stuff was completely out of control. And it's become hugely partisan. Justice Scalia, who I interviewed at the Supreme Court once, remarkably interesting guy, not my politics again, but I really enjoyed uh, my time with him. Pretty conservative guy, obviously. And he was, I think, nominated. He got through, I think, 99 to 1. Yes, exactly. And yet he was far more conservative, I would argue, than Kavanaugh. He never had to have every stone of his life raked over in such a salacious and humiliating manner. And it's got worse. It's got worse over the years. And it will continue to get worse as long as partisan politics in America, which is the worst I've ever known it right now, as long as that dictates everybody's thought process first, above morality and above ethics, then there's a problem. And I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. Reverse the situation. Assume that Kavanaugh was a Democrat nominee. Everybody who took a position against Kavanaugh would have switched and defended him. And conversely, everyone who defended him on the Republican side would have automatically switched and attacked him. That's not about morality or about ethics. That's about partisan politics. And we all know that's what's happening. The problem that I have with it is that it is such a charade. Everybody knows it, but everybody pretends they don't. And... That, to me, is just—it's intellectually dishonest. I think that's exactly the phrase I would use. It is dishonest, period, because actually it means people are no longer giving their honestly held views. Their first question is, is this a Democrat or Republican? And then all their view, whether it's some of the people involved in the Me Too scandal, where people race to defend people if they're Democrats, but race to attack people for the same stuff if they're Republicans, and vice versa, whatever it may be, Everything is being seen through the prism of partisan politics, and that is a dangerous road. Here's one of my favorites. From porn star scandals, DUI shame, and agonizing sports oblivion to champion again, Tiger Woods just showed the world's self-pitying snowflakes what it takes to tackle life's curveballs. I love that column. I love the title, and I love the column as well. Tiger has been through the ringer, Mm. and... He fought his way back, and I think a lot of people attributed this to psychological issues, emotional issues. He's been through hell physically. He creates so much torque on his back because I don't know Tiger well, but I know him well enough to know he is chiseled. I mean, he is strong, and the torque and 
clubhead speed he gets puts forces on his body that he's had to pay for, but he has kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and fought through that. That was a really good column. What moved you to write that? I don't know Tiger Woods. I've admired him from afar, and I've also criticized him from afar when he's been through his troubles. But what really impressed me about his comeback victory was that nobody ever thought he would achieve it. He'd been written off. He was number 1,198 in the world, I think, a year before that victory. He'd had multiple surgeries that people said he couldn't physically come back from. He'd had emotional torment with all that was going on off the course with the fabled stories from Vegas and the breakup of his marriage and so on. And anyone who's been through that kind of thing knows that it's horrible stress and strain. You put all that together and there seemed no possible way that Tiger Woods could win a major competition again. Not a major tournament, but just a, a big competition. And yet he did. And when he did, you saw the crowd swarming almost to like a Pied Piper-like figure. You saw ratings explode for golf in a way they hadn't seen for a decade. And you realize that this, this young kid, who remember, he'd been the first great black golfing champion in a sport that was predominantly white. You know, he was a guy who won the Masters at Augusta that only a few years earlier had actually allowed black people to play there. Right. So this guy was uh, someone who already smashed down many barriers. But the final barrier I felt he smashed down and why I wrote the column was at a time when I think a lot of people are claiming to be victims in life and claiming that, you know, woe is me, isn't my life awful? Let me tell you how awful it is. Tiger Woods took the complete opposite view. He was like, my life professionally and personally is crap right now, but I'm not a victim, I'm a champion, and I'm going to prove it. And I think there was a real lesson there, a life lesson for everybody, which is actually, yes, you know, the famous Rocky Balboa quote, isn't it? It's not how many times you get knocked down that defines you. It's how many times you get knocked down and get back up. Yep. And that's what I say to my kids all the time when they go through a tough time. It's like, look, this seems like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. In two months, you won't remember it. But you will be defined by how you recover from it. If you wallow in your own self-misery here, it will drag you down and make it 10 times harder to come through it. And I get criticized for saying stuff like that. You know, on World Mental Health Day this year, I said, why don't we change the terminology a bit? Mental health, to me, is the wrong term for people. Uh, if you're suffering from mental illness, that's one thing. That should be diagnosed and treated, and you should get all the care and attention you need. But actually, why don't we change mental health, which is a more generic term, which is sort of a bit perverse because it means it sounds like you're healthy. Why don't we change it to mental strength and resilience? So you have the two options. You can either be mentally ill, in which case you have a serious problem that needs to be diagnosed and treated, or you can be mentally strong and resilient and aspire to be that and be taught to be that at school. Athletes will all tell you. They have psychologists whose only job it is to make them mentally stronger, tougher mm -hmm. under pressure, yeah. more resilient. Yet schools are reluctant to do this. They are reluctant to use terminology like mentally <clears throat> strong because apparently it implies that if you're not mentally strong, you're mentally weak, to which I say we could all be mentally stronger. I could be. You could be. And yet we're two of the, probably the mentally strongest people that I, well, I, I oh, know. Absolutely. Um, and yet I would say I could still be stronger. I could still be more resilient. And I think we should try and change the terminology to make it a more positive thing than simply allowing a lot of people to let normal life stuff drag them down a bit. That's a big paradigm shift. And 
I've been invited to testify before Congress a number of times about school curriculums and cyberbullying and bullying and drugs in the schools and all sorts of things. And I've got to tell you, until they put money behind the curriculum and change it, all the rhetoric in the world, all the days that are declared, think about it. You go to school and we teach kids about reading, writing, arithmetic, history, biology, but we don't teach kids how to live. We don't teach them what to do if they, if they wake up depressed. We don't teach them how to deal with stress. We don't teach them how to deal with loss. We don't teach them how to be socially effective. We don't teach them about life. We just teach them about these academic subjects and consider them prepared for the next level of life. We don't do anything to teach them how to navigate the terrain of the world once they get out there. I tell you, one of the things that I think I was most proud of my son Jordan. When he was a junior in high school, he came to me, it was coming up Christmas time, and he said, Okay, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? I mean, come on, you buy anything you want. I mean, if it's August 3rd and you want something, you just buy it. What do I get you for Christmas? And I said, Okay, I want you to think about this before you say yes. I want you to give me one hour a week that I get your undivided attention to talk about anything I want to talk about. And don't say yes, because, oh, oh, wait, that's an easy way out. Think about it. I'm talking about 52 hours, and it's your job to find me and say, I'm here for the hour. I didn't let him answer that day. I made him wait, and he came back the next day and said, you got a deal. And he, he stuck to it. And for the next year... And it turned out to actually be more than an hour a week because he actually kind of got where he actually liked it. Because I didn't sit him down like this. We did it while we were shooting baskets or while we were out, you know, walking around or whatever. And I realized how much we aren't preparing kids for life. I taught him how to change the oil in a car. I talked to him about checking accounts. I talked to him about insurance on cars, taxes on the house. I talked uh, just all things that you kids don't learn. I talked to him about what happens if somebody picks a fight with you coming out of the basketball game. I talked to him about, so they've got a gun, they got a pipe, walk away. We talked about all the things about life. And I have to tell you, at the end of the year, I had a piece about me that I had actually prepared him for the next level of life that I did not have before that. We don't do that in school. Totally agree. We need to do it. Totally agree. And I think that this is a major problem. And I think so many kids now suffering from what is called anxiety, which didn't really exist when I was young. I mean, people felt anxious about stuff, but it wasn't fueled by social media. It wasn't fueled by perfection on Instagram and all the rest of it. There are particular challenges for young people today. But again, it comes back to perspective. You know, there is simply no comparison between feeling anxious about your friend's Instagram photos compared to what my grandmother went through as a teenager in World War II. But you need to be told that by somebody. You need to be told... This is not anything you need to overtly worry about, okay? Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Let me tell you about your grandmother, my grandmother, your great-grandmother. I had a conversation with my daughter the other day about my great-grandmother. So one of the toughest ladies you meet, and she was, because she lived through the war, mm-hmm. which is why we're able to have freedom. And now, I think it's about perspective. It's about giving people an idea that actually what they're dealing with is not the worst thing in the world. Far from it. Yeah. In fact, it's just normal life. Joe, it's so hard to have a different perspective if you don't live it. Because some of those 52 hours, we went to places where 
kids didn't have toys. We adopted families and put up Christmas trees and gave presents. Our kids live in a bubble if we don't take them out of it. Absolutely. And there's no way they can know if we don't do it. And I got to tell you, I had such a peace after that. And we've got to do that in the schools. You know, my my boy's mum, my first wife, she was a ward sister at a hospital for many years. And she always told me the power of positive thought was hugely important in a patient's ability to survive and recover and thrive again. Hugely important. Unquantifiable. You couldn't medically define it. You couldn't diagnose someone with positivity. But if they had it, their chances of actually coming through stuff were immeasurably higher than if their entire perspective was negative. And that always lived with me. It's like, well, if that surely is right, isn't it? I mean, surely having a positive mentality, a glass half full rather than half empty mentality, has to, in the end, be a better place to start from. Clearly, and you're right, you have to have a place to start from. You know, I always used to hear so-and-so had a philosophy of life, and I, I grew up thinking, I must not be very smart because I don't have a philosophy of life. I just get up every day and react to what's there. And then I started to realize I do have a philosophy of life. I just haven't really articulated it to myself. And then when I started doing that, I realized, you know what? I do have a strategy. Everybody has a way of being in the world. And mine was very commonsensical. And it's what turned into what is the show that I do. I mean, I get really down to basics like, you know, people ask me sometimes, you know, Dr. Phil, do you really think problems are as simple as you make them out to be? And the truth is, I don't think problems are simple at all. I think problems are often very complex. They're very layered. They're very multifaceted. But the solutions are often mm. very simple. It's kind of like the old joke of going to the doctor and you say, this hurts. He says, well, then don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you raise your arm, it hurts. Then, well, don't raise your arm. Um, True. It, it is a very simple, but... I mean, sometimes I'll spend an hour with people and at the end of the hour just say, okay, here's the solution. Stop rewarding bad behavior. You've got a husband or a wife or a kid. Stop rewarding bad behavior. Behavior that's rewarded tends to repeat. Behavior that's not tends to extinguish. Stop rewarding bad behavior. Sometimes it's just that simple. And I, you know, I don't know. It just seems like Maybe that's why I've been on 17 years. Common sense is not common enough. It's not. <laughs> uh, Pierce, this has been enlightening, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming and talking about this. I've loved it. Uh, it's I great to too. finally sit down with you and chew the fat. I've yeah. really enjoyed it. What's next for you? What's next in your life? Uh, I'm going to have to come and get another talk show in America just so I can get you on as a guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fat chance of that. Uh, I'll come to Britain and be on your Good Morning Britain show. I would love show. that, actually. Next I'll, time you're please do that, yeah. I'll do that. I'll come and be on the show. Or I'll get in the green room and say, it's Pierce Morgan? I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not doing this show. You know what's funny? <laughs> when I came in today, we came through the, the Melrose Gates, the famous Melrose Gates of the Paramount movie lot. And I suddenly remembered the last time I'd come through those gates. And it was 12 years ago. And I remember the first day I did it at this particular period I was here. And... Uh, Simon Cowell put me on a new show called America's Got Talent. It was even before Britain's Got Talent. It's the first time it had ever aired anywhere in the world. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And I remember coming from the Beverly Wilshire and driving down. Uh, I had a rented Aston Martin. So I was already feeling like the bee's knees. And I just arrived at those gates and I stopped and I went, wow, 
what the hell is happening here? This is unbelievable. And I drove through, got in my trailer, we began filming. Three months later it aired, number one show in America. My life never really looked back from that moment, thanks to Simon Cowell. And as I drove through there again this morning, I was like, there's something magical actually about where you work here, yeah. coming through those gates, which you would never lose if you loved the business that we both live in and love. You know, I tell my boys, Jay and Jordan, every once in a while, you know, Jay's the executive producer of The Doctors and Face the Truth and Daily Mail TV and Bull, which is a primetime show we're doing and, and some others that we're doing. And Jordan's in music and has a very hot band in the pop music scene right now and tours the country. And I tell them a lot because they're here. And, you know, just walking down this corridor back here, the red lights flashing. And, and you know, this is a... They shot part of The Godfather here on this set and part of Wizard of Oz and different things. And I, I tell them, I, I say, guys, once in a while you need to stop and just take a minute, look around, and don't let this blow by because this is a hell of a ride. It's a hell of an experience and not very many people get to do it. And... I don't take it for granted. I, I really don't. There's a picture I'll show you when we leave out here hanging up on the wall that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm. and uh, but it was when he was Lou Alcindor. And it hangs on the wall and it's kind of crooked because the day we came in, we're starting to build my set. There was a cherry picker up there and they were taking that giant picture down. And I said, whoa, 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 what, what's that? And they said, well, Arsenio Hall hung that up here. He did his show here. And by the way, it was the only show on this stage that has ever stuck. It lasted five years, and every other show that's been here has lasted less than a year. And he just hung that up when he got here, and I said, stop. <laughs> Leave that picture right where it is, yeah. and it's hung there now for 17 years that we've been here. And then when Jay, my son, launched The Doctors next door on stage 30, I had one of those pictures made identical to that. I took it over on his set. I hung it crooked just like that. <laughs> and he's now in his 11th season over there. So there's something magical about that picture. I'll tell you what, would you mind just giving me a copy of that before yes, I leave? Yes, I will. I'll ship you one anywhere you that need. That would be great. So, thanks for doing this. A real pleasure. I appreciate it. Real pleasure. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app and subscribe for free so you don't miss an episode.